Our reading this morning is from Acts chapter 9, um, and I'm going to start reading at verse 1 until verse 31. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him, so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me, so that you may regain your sight and be filled by the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened." For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is, this not, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. 
and he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Ellie, thank you very much for reading for us. And again, a very warm welcome, as Tom said. It's great to have you with us for our online gathering. Uh, Despite numerous sound checks, I believe we've had a few um, technical problems. Zoom keeps doing funny things to our sound, and I think some of you may have um, not heard our prayer. So I'm going to lead us again in a short prayer, and then we'll turn to our passage. Let's pray together. To carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Our Heavenly Father, we praise and thank you for the risen Lord Jesus. We pray that we would not be prevented from hearing his name proclaimed to us today. Please would the sound work as we gather now. And please, would you address us through your word and cause us to deeply believe that Jesus is risen. For we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, do keep um, the passage open if you've managed to grab a Bible or the handout online. We're going to look at this together. You might want to switch your phone onto aeroplane mode. I know you might be using it for the handout, but just to avoid distractions coming through via messages and that kind of thing. What we've just had read to us is, I think, the most amazing conversion account in all of Scripture. It is incredible, isn't it, what we've been told And Luke has recorded it for us because it is, of course, yet another evidence of the ongoing activity of the risen, ascended Lord Jesus. As he, from his throne in heaven, apprehends and turns around his persecutor, Saul of Tarsus. This week I um, took a pen and a highlighter to this passage just to try and get to grips with what the um, main point Luke is making is. And the word I underline the most is a title. It is the word Lord. It comes up 11 times, always in relation to Jesus. And the point of our passage today is this, that Jesus is the risen Lord. Lord means master, owner, ruler. In the Bible, it means God. And that is what Luke wants us to see today, that Jesus is our risen, reigning Lord. He is Lord of all. And my prayer for us this morning as we gather together is that we would just believe that more deeply. Perhaps believe it truly for the first time, Um, but that all of us would believe it more deeply. That is what I'm praying as we turn our attention to this account of Saul, his conversion, and his total transformation, that Jesus is reigning at this very moment in time. John Bunyan was a pastor about 350 years ago in this country. He wrote a book that if you haven't read before, um, you should definitely read in lockdown. It's called Pilgrim's Progress. 
It is an amazing book. Another book you might want to read is Tested by Fire by John Piper, where we get a little biography of John Bunyan. And it's been interesting to revisit his life and the times in which he lived in this country when people did experience amazing limitations. The laws of the land restricted religious freedoms in quite an extraordinary way. The Crown made a law that said that any non-Church of England churches could not gather in a group of more than five people from outside of your family at any one time. They literally had the rule of five back in those days. During that time, and Bunyan's subsequent imprisonment, he continued to preach Christ to his congregation, he said this, there is one political maxim that comforts me, the Lord reigns. If ever the worst did happen, and preaching Christ was criminalized, by which I mean preaching him personally, we saw last week that preaching is a personal thing we do in conversation, or preaching him publicly indeed, if that were ever to be criminalized, we really would need to be convinced that Jesus is Lord, wouldn't we? This week, Chris and I and 1,700 other church leaders wrote uh, or signed a letter to Boris Johnson. It was copied to all the MPs in our land, and it closed with these words. We find ourselves as church ministers and leaders caught in a serious tension between our duty to God and our strong desire to submit to our government, a tension we hoped and expected never to experience in this country. It is a matter of great distress to us and to Christian people that the government of the nation we love should ban us from gathering to worship the God who claims our highest loyalty. And who knows, in the future, we may really have our convictions about the supremacy, the lordship of Jesus put to the test. So today, I want us to be persuaded that it's true, that he's risen, that he's reigning, that he's lord. And we're going to do that by looking at this amazing account of Saul of Tarsus, that's point one, and secondly, his conversion, point two, and thirdly, his amazing transformation, point three. And as we do that, I hope that we'll have hammered home to us this truth that the whole book of Acts has been hammering home, that Jesus is Lord. So firstly, let's consider this man, Saul of Tarsus. Luke paints a horrifying picture of Saul in verse 1, doesn't he? Have a look at verse 1. We're told that still breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. We're almost to picture Saul as this wild, untamable beast of a man, driven along by a hot, violent hatred for Christians. I'm told that when anger seizes a person, adrenaline starts flowing, your muscles tense up, your heart rate increases, you sweat, and your breathing quickens. And the sense we have of Saul as he breathes out threats and murder or slaughter is that he was for a time in a state of permanent hate-fueled rage and anger towards those who called on the name of Jesus. The very thought of them made his blood 
boil. I was listening, as it happens just this week, to an interview um, with a pastor called Fabidi Anyawile, and he spoke of his anger that he carried through from childhood experiences into his adult life before he became a Christian. The anger I had fairly quickly, fairly easily became a deep-seated hatred for Christians. He was a religious man, he wasn't a Christian, but he felt this anger. Defending my faith, he said, meant attacking Christianity, and that was Saul, except to the absolute extreme. Had the church been in lockdown in that day, it wouldn't have stopped him. He would have Zoom-bombed any meeting he could and cursed Christ and Christianity. I suppose we would call him a religious fanatic. That is the sort of picture we're given here of him. Now, I suppose Luke got his information from Saul. They became friends later in life after he was converted and became the Apostle Paul. But Luke could have also got this information about him from the apostles who were first-hand witnesses and really recipients of Saul's persecution of Christians. In fact, Luke could have spoken to any Christian from the time and they would have been able to tell him about Saul. He was famous for his persecution of Christians. Um, In verse 11, we're told that after Saul's conversion, the risen Lord speaks for a second time and tells a Christian called Ananias to rise and go to a street called Straight, and that at the house of Judas, he should look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. And we can easily imagine what he thought as he was given that command, can't we? Because he knew about Saul. His reputation had gone before him. Ananias must have said to him, um, himself, um, really? You want me to go to Saul? He says to Jesus, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. And you're sending me to him? Saul was famous for his persecution. Do you remember back in chapter 8, we witnessed the stoning to death of Stephen as he stood there, his face shining like an angel, but being broken by stones. And Saul stood there approving of this bloody murder of the first Christian martyr. He then went about in the capital dragging men and women off into prison, stamping out Christianity. And when he'd finished, he set off for Damascus to go and spread, to contain, sorry, the spread of Christianity with letters in hand to go to the synagogues. And you can imagine what he had planned. He would go to the synagogue and preach against Christ and say, is there anyone here who will not renounce him? And of course, at that time, there were still Christians meeting in the synagogues, and there would have been silence. And those who were silent, whether men or women, would have been bound, shackled in chains, and taken off to prison. Luke makes a point, often, of mentioning that Saul didn't care whether it was a man or a woman. He was merciless. I'm told that even the most brutal kings and generals would have spared women in the ancient world, generally speaking, in war, but not Saul. Real cruelty. 
And yet, by the end of verse 19, he is a Christian. And that brings us to our second heading, Saul of Tarsus and his extraordinary conversion. Can you imagine the scene in your mind? There, Saul's motoring down the road to Damascus, muttering murder to himself, must kill Christians, must contain Christianity, must cancel it out. Suddenly, he is blinded by the brightest of lights, like a floodlight at midnight turned on in your face. Blinded by a light during the daytime that must have been brighter than the sun in the sky. And so he instantly falls to the ground. Saul, Saul, comes a voice from heaven. Why are you persecuting me? Saul instantly knows that he is in the presence of divinity. God is speaking to him and he knows it. With a gulp, we can imagine, he says, who are you, Lord? And I suspect he was saying to himself, don't say Jesus, don't say Jesus, don't say Jesus. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Can you imagine that scene? As the risen, enthroned Jesus apprehends his persecutor. And in grace says to him, rise, enter the city, and you'll be told what to do. <laughs> We're told in verse 7 of the men he was traveling with. They just stood there with their mouths gaping open, speechless, unable to say anything because they just heard that same voice too. They had witnessed it. Well, the account goes on. Paul gets up, and in great humility, now a captive of Jesus Christ, he has to be led by the hand. And he spends three days in the darkness of his blindness, without eating, without drinking, just praying. There he was, so overcome by what he had seen and heard, so overcome by the risen Lord to whom he was now praying that he could do nothing else but that. The picture is of a person now in total submission. He has been tamed and turned around because Jesus, from his throne in heaven, has converted him. We're told, uh, as we looked at earlier in verses 11 and onwards, that Ananias is sent to Saul, this dubious task which he's given. But Saul also knows that he's coming. Jesus has given him a vision, verse 12, of a man named Ananias coming and laying his hand on Saul and restoring his sight. Can you imagine Saul just waiting for the weight of that hand to rest upon his back? 
the gesture, the sign, the seal that the risen Lord has now included him into his kingdom. And in verse 17, Ananias departs. He enters the house, laying his hands on him. He says these glorious words, Brother Saul. The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately in that moment, Saul, who has been blinded, finds something like scales falling from his eyes as the risen Lord restores him and his sight. And he's baptized, initiated into the kingdom, and he eats and he drinks and his strength is restored. He is a totally new man, never ever to be the same again because Jesus has converted him. That is Saul's astonishing conversion. Saul, the Christian hater and hunter, has become a Christian. And you know, this conversion, it is a fact, a fact of history. It really cannot be denied. How else do we explain a conversion so dramatic, so sudden, so unique and extraordinary of someone so infamous and famous for his hatred of Christianity? I don't think we can find a reasonable, more plausible explanation for it than the one that we are given by Saul. He met the risen Lord. And this is Luke's point for us today. He wants us to see, as we have been seeing time and again, that it's true, it's real. Jesus is risen. Today, he is active and operative in our world, bringing people into his kingdom, reigning over the nations of this world. And he did it then as he brought Saul to his knees. Well, finally and thirdly, our our third heading, Saul's transformation. We don't have much time for this, but it is very important because it proves to us that this conversion really did happen. It was for real. Before we consider that, I mean, I, I do just love the irony of this passage, the complete and utter 180 degree turnaround that we see. Saul set out to contain Christianity as it spread abroad. But he becomes the instrument Jesus will use to take his name to the nations. Verse 15, the Gentiles, and indeed to kings and to the children of Israel. It is just brilliant, isn't it? The power of the risen Jesus to convert and recruit anyone he likes. The transformation of Saul, though, is particularly important because it proves that he really was converted. Verses 20 to 31 basically make the point that Saul was entirely transformed as a person. 
The verses that um, really make that very clear are verses 26 and 27. Just have a look at them with me. When he came to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. They didn't believe he'd been converted. But verse 27, Barnabas, our friend Barnabas, who earlier in Acts sold his field to support the needy in the church, again shows up, and he brings the Apostle Paul, and well, Saul at this time, to the apostles and declares to them how on the road he'd seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So do you see, not even the apostles believed for a while that Saul had been converted. And that is a problem. You know, if for some reason Saul hadn't been converted, it was made up for some strange reason, faked, then everything we've said so far doesn't stand to reason. The risen Lord didn't apprehend him and change him. But do you see, the apostles quickly came to see that it was true. Their Lord had acted in Saul's life to convert him. The evidence, his total and utter transformation. In verses 20 to 31, what we get is repeated descriptions of Saul. Immediately, straight away, he goes to the synagogues where he was going to arrest Christians, and he says, I'm one of them now. Jesus is the Son of God. He's the Christ. And he proves it. He argues and reasons with the Jews in the synagogue. And he does this so vehemently, so courageously, so boldly, that people begin to hate him and want to kill him. And so as a result, he has to be smuggled out of the city in a basket from the city walls in humility and shame. And then when he does get to Jerusalem, we're told he continues to preach boldly after the apostles have admitted him. And again, as a result, the Jews, they want to kill him. Here is a man who has been totally changed, willing to suffer for the name of Jesus, unflinching in his devotion to proclaiming his name to everyone. Saul was totally transformed. And that tells us that he really was converted. It was the risen Lord Jesus who apprehended him on the road to Damascus. Nothing else, as I've suggested, can reasonably, satisfactorily explain this history which Luke has recorded for us. And it points us to a reality that Jesus is the risen Lord. So as we close, a word of application. As a nation, we're talking a lot at the moment about following the science. And um, I'm glad we have scientists, sciencing and that kind of thing. But our nation desperately needs to do more than merely follow the science. 
pandemic or no pandemic, science is not the only evidence, not the only guidance that we have been given as human beings. Dr. Luke is saying to us today that if we will follow the evidence of history, we will discover that there is more to human existence than this life. We will discover evidences in history of a risen, enthroned Lord ruling over a heavenly kingdom, presiding in eternity. And that is our truth, that is a truth that our nation desperately needs to know. We've seen these last few weeks as we studied the book of Acts that Jesus, by his death, we've been considering it today, has sacrificially opened the way to heaven for anyone and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. And this, therefore, means that surely we must proclaim him. That is the application of our passage, isn't it? That is the implication of Jesus' enthronement and lordship. That his name must be carried before the nations and the children of Israel and indeed kings. Look at verse 15. This week when I was taking my pen and highlighted to this passage, the verse I honed in on, the verse that got the yellow highlighter treatment was verse 15. Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Now, of course, we're not Saul. Here, Saul is receiving a special commission. He is receiving an apostolic commission, which as we study on in Acts, we'll see him specifically and entirely completing. But at the same time, as we study this commission, we see a very clear statement of Jesus' intention for the nations of this world, for the children of Israel, and indeed for the rulers of this world, for kings and governors and presidents and prime ministers. It is the will of our risen Lord that they should have announced to them his name, Jesus, Lord, that everyone should hear that message. Joe Biden will soon settle into the White House, I suppose eventually at least, and I don't know what he believes. But it would be possible, at least quietly in your head, if you're President of the United States of America to settle down in that leather chair by the desk and just to think to yourself, I am the leader, the ruler of the most powerful nation on the earth. There's no one above me. But of course there is one person far 
far above all people. And his name is Jesus. Jesus who died, who rose from death, being declared the Son of God in power, and who ascended and was enthroned at the right hand of God the Father on high, and who now is, right now, reigning, ruling as Lord. (laughs) And so, uh, Mr. Biden, and indeed Mr. Johnson, respectfully, on behalf of the church family at St. Nick's, here is the message that we would share. You have a Lord, and his name is Jesus. Well, just as Jesus gave Paul a ministry marked with particular suffering for his name's sake, once again, though we're not Saul, we're not the Apostle Paul, it may well be that our commitment to the public proclamation of the gospel could incur suffering. In years to come, if this recording gets us deleted from social media or me thrown in prison or something like that, don't worry because the Lord reigns. Let's pray together. Stephen says, as he's going to his death, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. How we praise you, our Heavenly Father, for sending your Son into the world to die for human sin, to open the way to heaven. How we praise you that you rose him from the dead and that he is now seated at your right hand, the Son of Man, the ruler, the judge of all people, but also the Saviour who welcomes anyone, anywhere, who will call upon his name. And we ask that you would help us as individuals and corporately as a church family to stand and proclaim to our nation, to our world, to all people everywhere, this truth that Jesus is Lord. For we ask it in his name. Amen.